John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly, and my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 91 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I'm your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and we are distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective because, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media and follow us on Twitter at individual one pod. That's at individual, the number one pod. So as we speak on this Sunday morning, Los Angeles, California time, a major development has occurred in the race for the Democratic presidential nomination. We are now two days away from Super Tuesday. And yesterday, pretty much everything, at least in theory, changed quite dramatically. Boy, that escalated quickly. Uh, To review... With regard to where we have been and where we might be going uh, in this Democratic nominating process, it has always been my belief from the very beginning that Joe Biden would be the safest bet to go up against Donald Trump if your goal was to make the election a referendum on Donald Trump and uh, potentially beat him, assuming that the circumstances went in your direction. I have never wavered that Joe Biden would be the safest bet However, uh, clearly, as the process got going and he did very poorly in the first few primary and caucus contests, I got extremely nervous. And I believe rightfully so. I used the analogy that he was the starting pitcher in the seventh game of the World Series. And instead of throwing in the mid-80s, as expected, he was throwing at best in the high 70s and that we needed to get him the hell out of there. And at one point, uh, I even wrote a column for Mediate and suggested on this podcast that the best way, not the only, but the best way to defeat Donald Trump would be for Biden and Elizabeth Warren to get out of the race and make room for Amy Klobuchar. This was after her third place finish in New Hampshire. And I believe that that was the right way to go because it was clear to me that Biden was not going to be able to throw in the 80s, which is what you need to be viable, even with the wind at your back. And this is the seventh game of the World Series and you cannot afford to lose. It's a you know, win or go home. And the stakes could not be higher with regard to a second term for Donald Trump. And that Amy Klobuchar, because of the fact that she's a woman, she's younger, She's far more articulate. She has far less baggage. Her geography is conducive to beating Donald Trump. That all of these things uh, made that the best, maybe last hope to beat Donald Trump. Well, I also knew that that was never going to happen. There was no chance that Biden and Warren were going to get out, if only because of ego, and because Joe Biden had placed all of his eggs. I mean, all of his eggs. He put every chip he had left on South Carolina, and he was never going to get out of the race until and unless 
he lost South Carolina, which I never thought he would lose. However, I also never thought he was going to blow the doors off of South Carolina. In fact, in the last episode of the podcast, David Schuster, a cable news veteran, and a somewhat of a Bernie Sanders supporter, certainly someone who believes that Bernie Sanders is being underestimated and could easily win the nomination and then go on to beat Donald Trump. I urge you to check out that very interesting interview slash debate we had in episode number 91. I, I disagreed strongly with David when he said that, uh, that Bernie Sanders would win South Carolina. I said, no, Joe Biden is going to win South Carolina. This is going to be the, the, uh, the last hurrah of the old guard, uh, and the, the black vote there will stand by Joe Biden enough for him to win. I did not believe, though, that he would end up winning by 28, 29 points. That was shocking, uh, even to me, as someone who has been a Biden booster, although has been very nervous, understandably so, over the last month, and has been also concerned about whether or not Joe Biden has destroyed his superpower, if you will, of being the best candidate to go up against Trump because of some of the things that have happened and that he has had to endure uh, during the last few months, including the impeachment saga, which obviously focused around uh, him and alleged corruption with his uh, son, Hunter. Well, oh, God. Uh, And so this was something that was very, very uh, rattling to me that, okay, I've never thought Biden was out of it as far as winning the nomination, but has he now put himself in a situation where even if he wins the nomination, he's not well positioned to beat Trump, one, because he's been bloodied, but also because now the Bernie bros, the supporters of Bernie Sanders, have now become emotionally invested in the idea that their guy's going to be the nominee, and that for the second straight time, are they going to feel as if they got robbed? And if they feel robbed for a second straight time, are they not going to show up for Joe Biden in November? Well, oh, God. So that is still a major concern to me. Uh, but it's uh, it's really, at this point, you have no other options. It's now either Joe Biden or it's Bernie Sanders. There's, there's really no path for anybody else barring some sort of uh, black swan cataclysmic event which could always happen in this in this day and age but I don't I don't anticipate it and it would really be hard to imagine it. So going into South Carolina, if Joe Biden lost South Carolina it was completely over for him and if he only won South Carolina by a small margin, I also think it was probably over for him. But that's not what happened. Uh, Joe Biden with the help of South Carolina Congressman James Clyburn an African-American congressman who gave him a wholehearted endorsement uh, during the last few days of the campaign, uh, it pulled off a remarkable victory, a victory that, in retrospect, we don't know what it's going to be yet. I mean, it could still just be a dead cat bounce, but it could also be a major moment in the history of this country because South Carolina rallied for Joe Biden. They circled the wagons. And Joe Biden won with about 49 percent, 48, 49 percent of the vote over Bernie Sanders, who didn't even technically crack 20 percent of the vote. Tom Steyer, as I told you would happen, as I told you would happen and will likely also happen to Michael Bloomberg, the Tom Steyer vote never materialized. Yeah, he broke uh, double digits, uh, barely. But Tom Steyer suffered from a phenomenon uh, that I, I told you about, I think, two uh, episodes ago, where there is a candidate who is essentially TV only. He, uh, yeah, he's got an infrastructure in, in South Carolina because he paid for it, but he, he is not well known to people. People just know him by the commercials he's able to buy because he's a billionaire. And when they respond to polls, their support is overinflated. Because when you answer the phone and you're asked, uh, who do you support? And you think, well, I don't know. I just saw a Tom Steyer Steyer commercial. He seems pretty cool. I think I'll vote for him. That person is not likely to actually vote. Because it is is a very passive act to pick up the phone and respond to a poll. But it is much more of an active situation where you have to defeat inertia to get off your ass and go vote, whether it's via mail or whether it's in person. That's a much more active situation. 
and in, in inevitably there is attrition. There is contraction of the numbers. Now, how much? No one knows. Uh, but that's what happened with Tom Steyer in South Carolina, and he is now officially dropped out. Elizabeth Warren finished yet again a very disappointing single-digit fifth place, and Amy Klobuchar finished even behind her. But the big news here was that Joe Biden not only kept his campaign alive, he may have completely rejuvenated it. Now, there's two sides to this story, and this is what to me is fascinating, because I don't think anybody truly knows what's going to happen two days from now on so-called Super Tuesday. But let's, let's figure out first about what happened in South Carolina. So because of James Clyburn's endorsement, Joe Biden ended up winning 61% of the black vote in South Carolina. That is amazing. That is amazing for a candidate who had done poorly in virtually every contest so far, except for a a distant second place in the Nevada caucus. The idea, and I was very skeptical of this, that Biden was going to be able to hold his vote together in South Carolina while he was doing poorly in all these other contests, I thought was exceedingly overly optimistic for Joe Biden. But there's a couple things that I did not uh, anticipate. And one of them, I got to tell you, is, is, is my perception, at least, of the culture of the black community. It is very obvious, and I've seen this not just in this situation, but I've seen this in other stories that I have covered and even in my own personal life. There is something in black culture that is far more loyal, especially to their elders, than it is in my experience in white culture. Because uh, I don't believe that uh, white people would have stood by uh, Joe Biden the way that black people in South Carolina did. Uh, the idea that a 61% of the black vote, when you're going up against Bernie Sanders, who's promising the moon and the stars, Elizabeth Warren, who's exceedingly progressive, and, uh, and Tom Steyer, who's making a direct plea to the black community by even offering reparations the only candidate in the race, directly offering reparations for slavery, and you're still able to get 61% of the vote. And it's purely because of Jim Clyburn's endorsement and obviously the fact that Joe Biden was Barack Obama's vice president for eight years. And there's still enormous loyalty to Joe Biden because of that. And I, I respect the hell out of that. I think that's fantastic, and it, it, it has temporarily saved this country and maybe the world from a disastrous, insane-making general election between Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Now, that does not mean that we're anywhere near uh, avoiding that uh, potentially catastrophic scenario. We're nowhere near there yet. But there's still hope, and there's a path. And in two days, we're going to know a hell of a lot more than what we know now. Now, the pro-Biden argument, the pro-Biden scenario is this, that now that he won South Carolina and gets a huge bounce out of there, all of a sudden, uh, the stench of death is off of him. All of a sudden, he's uh, throwing in the, in maybe not the mid-80s, but the, uh, the low 80s. I'm not going to get too excited about this because let's be clear. He didn't do nearly as well as Hillary Clinton did in South Carolina in 2016. And we know what ended up happening to her in a general election. So, you know, yes, he did great. Uh, But uh, when you compare him to what Hillary Clinton did, yes, it was only two candidates in 2016. But uh, by every measure, Joe Biden way underperformed her. So and, and she barely ended up winning the nomination over Bernie Sanders in 2016. So there's, there's reason not to get too super excited, but when you don't have many options and there's not much hope, you'll grab on to whatever you can. So going, getting back to the pro-Biden scenario here. So now that South Carolina has given him momentum and the black vote came out huge for Joe Biden, is the black vote in South Carolina going to be like a bat signal to the rest of the black voters in the country. It is, I don't have an answer to that. It certainly could be. It c- certainly could be enough. And a lot of people have asked me, okay, where's Barack Obama in this? And I have asked continually myself, 
Where's Barack Obama? Just this week, Obama did a couple things. Like, for instance, he shot down a negative Biden ad by a Trump super PAC. That was a positive development because they were trying to make it look like Obama didn't really like Biden, which shows you how much Trump, the Trump people fear Joe Biden to this day, even post-impeachment. And also Joe Biden finally now has a commercial out there where he has Barack Obama praising him which was way too late, in my opinion, but it, it clearly is important for him if he's going to, uh, you know, not only just win black voters, but win uh, the votes of all sorts of different elements of the, the Democratic uh, uh, constituency. So that's a positive development. But let's just go again, trying to go through this from a positive Biden scenario. So the, the black vote in South Carolina, as a as a bat signal, as I'm referring to it, Uh, ends up translating to a huge victory in several southern states. There's about four or five southern states on Tuesday, which have significant black populations within those who will vote in a Democratic primary. And if that happens, if Joe Biden gets, say, way over or significantly over 50 percent of the black vote, he will win those caucus, those primaries. He will absolutely win those primaries. If he can get over 50 percent, of the, of the black vote in those southern states, then those states are his. I think that's likely to happen. Uh, I, but we don't know. We just don't know because the other element of this is trying to figure out what kind of a bounce you get from an event on a Saturday night in this day and age. We're really in uncharted territory. In the old days, here's what would happen. In the old days, I mean, like in you know, my, my youth, the 80s or the 90s or whatever, where we didn't have much in the way of entertainment options and people were far more focused on news because they had no choice to, the events of South Carolina would have been seen by a lot more people. The, his speech, which was very good after winning South Carolina, would have been seen by a lot more people. The Sunday morning shows reviewing this would have been seen by a lot more people. The Monday newscasts, the evening newscasts, would have been seen by a lot more people. And the event itself, the news event itself, would have enough power to influence the vote on Tuesday. But now we're living in a very different world. We're living in a world where, yes, news travels at record speed. But it gets to less people. That's the, the great contradiction of the modern era. So it creates a misperception that people know about things. Because people who are news junkies like me and probably you, we know about almost everything instantaneously. But the average person doesn't. So is it piercing through? Is it making enough of an impact in two and a half days to get people to change their votes? And then there's the other element where you have early voting in a lot of these states, like here in California, where lots and lots of people have already voted. Now, there's an article in Politico today Uh, that indicates that there is some hope for the Biden campaign because those numbers of people who have already voted is lower than it has been previously and that the people who have not voted are very much in his demographic. They're older people who traditionally vote in every election. And there's a theory, and there's some data to back it up, that those people who have been waiting, they've been waiting to see, okay, you know, this is a really important decision. Who am I going to go with? Who has the best chance to beat Donald Trump? And, uh, you know, there's been there's so many different choices. They've been a little bit confused. So I am of the belief that California is really everything on Tuesday. It's everything. And, and here's why it's everything. One, because it's the largest state with the most delegates. That's the most obvious reason but also because of the way that the delegates are allocated. If Joe Biden can get over 20% of the vote in California, which means that he would be viable statewide for delegates, if he can get over 20% and he gets over 50% of the black vote in those southern states, I think he's going to be okay. 
I think that at the very, very least, he can battle this all the way to the convention. He might end up being a little bit behind Bernie Sanders, but there will at least be the ability for him to pull this out. It will be bloody as hell, and it's not the, the, the first or even the second best scenario here if your goal is to beat Donald Trump, but at least it keeps hope alive. So so those are the two benchmarks, I believe, that are most important for Joe Biden on Tuesday. Get over 50% of the black vote, which you know, I think is very plausible uh, based upon what happened in South Carolina. Now, there are no Jim Clyburns in all these other states that are going to wave a magic wand and all of a sudden everyone's going to vote for Joe Biden. But I do believe that uh, we're, you know, th- that news is going to percolate. That is going to percolate through the black community. And now uh, with, you know, the commercials with Obama, uh, that the message is going to be a little bit more clear here. Steyer is out of the race. I don't believe black people are going to go for Michael Bloomberg. It's becoming more and more obvious, especially if you're a, a black Democrat, who that choice is. And as far as why Barack Obama has not come out and made an official endorsement, I am a little bit baffled by this. I can I get that he doesn't want to be seen as pushing people towards Joe Biden. He might even fear that there's a backlash, kind of like 2016, if the establishment is seen as being too pro uh, one person, then everyone rushes even more to Bernie Sanders, just like they did with Donald Trump in 2016. There's also another scenario here which might make a little bit more sense. If you're Obama and you're looking at this, and he's a smart guy, and you're looking at this and you're saying, okay, there's a darn good chance this is going to go to the convention. And if it goes to the convention, that's when the decision is really going to be made. And you need to hold your fire, keep your powder dry until then. It is at the convention then that, in theory, Obama could throw his weight around. I don't know if that's what his thinking is, but it's a theory that at least makes some sense and explains why we have not heard from Barack Obama as of yet. Uh, and so I'm, I'm at least keeping open that possibility. Now, there are people who say, and I, I tend to understand this, that uh, every single cycle now we always say, oh, it's headed for a, a contested convention, a brokered convention, and it never ends up happening that way because people tend to rush to the victor's side, and therefore all the extrapolation math is off because they don't account for the idea that there's going to be a momentum effect. And that's what happened with Trump in 2016. I mean, I was one of those convinced that it had to go to the convention based upon the early math. But the extrapolation was all wrong. And it might be wrong again here. But that's all going to depend on what happens in Tuesday, on Tuesday. And as far as California is concerned and getting 20%, Biden is nowhere near 20% right now in the polls. He's somewhere in the, in the low teens and he's got to get at least 15% to be viable. I think he needs 20% because 20% would then, in all logic, have him viable in most of the congressional districts, if not all of them. And I, speaking of endorsements, I am totally baffled as to why there's no word yet of a Kamala Harris endorsement for Joe Biden here in California. Kamala Harris is a, a I guess you would call her a black uh, a female senator here in California. Uh, she ran for president. She dropped out before there was any uh, actual voting. Uh, she and Biden went at each other pretty good, or she went after him pretty good in the uh, the first debate. There was even talk of Chris Matthews famously uh, said that, uh, asked her whether or not Joe Biden was done after that first debate. And here she never even made it to the first vote. And now Biden is, is clearly one of the two uh, front runners in the race. But a Kamala Harris endorsement, I would think... It would help pretty significantly here because you got to remember of the people who are voting in a Democratic primary here in California, at least 90 to 95 percent of those people have voted for Kamala Harris in the past to be U.S. senator. So if she came out and publicly said, uh, Joe Biden's my guy, you would think that would be worth at least a few points. And a few points might be incredibly important here. Because the difference between Joe Biden getting, say, 13 or 14 percent statewide in California on Tuesday and getting 20 or 21, maybe higher percent in California, might very well be the difference between Bernie Sanders being able to be caught or being able to be brought to the convention 
and Bernie Sanders getting a lead that is so large that he cannot be caught because you got over 400 delegates here in California. And there is a scenario, and it is a long shot, but if the polls stay exactly as they were before South Carolina, which they never are, they, they, they will always move, and they're, no, they're not always 100% accurate in a race this complex. But in theory, in theory, you could have Bernie Sanders winning almost all the delegates out of California, which would then make it absolutely impossible for, for anybody to catch him, no matter what Barack Obama did. Now, it might not mean he gets to the number needed to clinch the nomination, but at a certain point, when you're that far ahead, you can't take it away from him because now you're causing civil war within your party. And, and now your chances of beating Donald Trump become much more diminished, especially if the Bernie people are not going to show up. And by gosh, you know, I, I tweeted uh, uh, and it got retweeted thousands of times last night, uh, a video of Bernie Sanders rally in Boston, Massachusetts yesterday in the cold, in the middle of a coronavirus panic where you would think people might be afraid to get into close-knit crowds. Uh, this was extraordinary. I, I spent a lot of time in my life in Boston and in Boston Common where this uh, this rally took place. And and I realized that the, the, the way that the photographs were taken might be distortive. But my goodness gracious, there were at least 13,000, 15,000, maybe more than that, people at a rally on a cold day at the end of February for Bernie Sanders in the home state of Elizabeth Warren. I mean, wow. Uh, That is an indication that clearly there is a movement. Now, is it a movement large enough to win the Democratic nomination? Is it a movement large enough to beat Donald Trump? I'm still very skeptical. I think it is possible, but I'm still very skeptical because there's still a lot of evidence, as I have been saying for weeks, the irony of Bernie Sanders becoming the frontrunner in this race is that he's really been underperforming. He's been underperforming what he did in 2016. Yes, there was only a two-person race. I get that. But he still, in many of these contests, was getting a lot less votes than he did uh, four years prior. He, he also is underperforming his polling data. I mean, now the climber burn endorsement maybe have distorted things in South Carolina, but nobody except one poll uh, thought, that Joe Biden was going to crush Bernie Sanders by 28, 29 points. And Sanders continually talks about how he's leading a revolution and that uh, he's bringing people to the polls that have never voted before. And there's not really that much evidence of that. If anything, his, his influence is being inflated in polls. Uh, and so that's part of what makes Tuesday so fascinating and so unpredictable because you can make an argument. All right, here again, just to complete this, this pro Joe Biden changed the world argument, uh, uh, on Tuesday, you could have an argument where if Sanders really is uh, not going to perform up to expectations because there's a there's a, something in the polling that indicates that his support is inflated. So if he underperforms the polls and Biden really does get a bounce out of what happened in South Carolina and the black vote comes out to where he he repeats South Carolina throughout the South and in California he's able to suddenly miraculously uh, get viable, get over 15% and, and Sanders' numbers come down, and then all of a sudden Sanders' lead out of Super Tuesday really isn't all that dramatic. And then all of a sudden uh, some of these moderates drop out, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, uh, you know, I don't know what you would call, I never called Steyer a moderate, even though some people thought that he was. Um, you know, Bloomberg is, is the biggest uh, wild card here. We don't know what Bloomberg's going to do because he's got all the money in the world and he's got a massive ego. It was concerning, about the only concerning thing for Joe Biden last night, and and this is it's very dangerous to take this super seriously. But I was watching MSNBC, and Brian Williams, who you know no longer is the the lead anchor on NBC Nightly News because of his 
uh, willingness and ability to exaggerate and make up things involving his, his own personal history. But he's now allowed on MSNBC to anchor their election coverage. And he referenced a report, and I don't know how reliable it was, but he said, quote, that uh, the, the Bloomberg people did not believe that the Biden campaign was worth their money. Well, oh, God. And that's a problem. That's a, if that's true, which is a big if, that's a problem because it indicates, one, Bloomberg ain't going to get out no matter how badly he does on Tuesday. And it also indicates that there's not a lot of enthusiasm there for saying, OK, uh, we'll get out, but we'll continue uh, using our money as a blowtorch uh, against Bernie Sanders to the benefit of Joe Biden. Again, I don't know if that's true or not. I, there must be something to it. Or I doubt Brian Williams would have mentioned it in the middle of election coverage, but that was disconcerting. It's also disconcerting if you want to take a look at the negative argument here, because that's, again, partially why I, I find Tuesday to be fascinating, because you could, you could argue almost anything for what's going to happen on Tuesday. The negative Biden scenario is that it's too late that we don't live in a world, uh, as I outlined previously, uh, that uh, what happened in South Carolina does not resonate nearly as much in the rest of the country, uh, that, uh, and that Bernie Sanders has the infrastructure, Bernie Sanders has the momentum, Bernie Sanders has the energy, Joe Biden has no uh, infrastructure, hardly at all. Apparently he only has one office here in the entire state of California. In other states, he has zero. There, uh, up until, I think, the last few days, he had spent no money, largely because he didn't have any on Super Tuesday states. So if Joe Biden is going to pull off this miracle, it's really going to rewrite the rules of politics. Because are we still in an era where you can rely totally on news coverage, totally on momentum, and nothing on infrastructure, nothing on boots on the ground, almost nothing when it comes to television ad buys directly in these states for weeks and weeks in advance. And you know, I'm sure he's getting a lot of money now, but it's awfully hard in two days to translate that into any kind of support. So you can make an argument that the uh, Biden win, while it's absolutely significant, may not end up translating into nearly as much as they hope on Tuesday. You can also make an argument that it really did change the world. And I'm not 100% sure uh, which direction it's going to go, although at the end of the podcast I will give you, as I almost always do, uh, my predictions for what is likely to happen. Um, now, uh, but to me, at this point, I, I do think we have to acknowledge there's a very good chance, unless Bernie Sanders totally flames out, that this does look like it's going to go to the convention. I, 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 I am very hesitant to come to that conclusion because it's never happened in modern history before, and people always argue that it will, and then it never ends up happening. But I do believe that it's, it is increasingly likely that there are some special circumstances here that allow that to happen uh, unless, you know, Bernie Sanders totally flames out. And you, you can make some parallels to what's happening now to the, I would say, the 2008 Republican primary battle where Joe Biden is reliving what happened with John McCain. He's just doing it much later than McCain did. McCain made his comeback in New Hampshire Biden is making his comeback in South Carolina. There are those who will compare this to 1992 and Bill Clinton, but I don't think there's much comparison between Bill Clinton, who was a young, exciting guy uh, who uh, was from Arkansas in 1992 and wasn't that well known, to Joe Biden, who's older than dirt, everybody knows him, uh, was already vice president for eight years. So to me, the comparison is much more to McCain in 2008 to uh, Biden and what he's trying to do in 2020. Of course, McCain did not end up winning. And it's obviously yet to be seen whether or not uh, Biden can end up translating this into a victory in November. I do believe that Trump is going to benefit tremendously from having zero legitimate primary battle to the point where his party, which is now a cult, was willing and able to even cancel 
uh, those contests for all intents and purposes, many of them, uh, because they didn't want to have their king have to actually go through a, a primary uh, process, which was outrageous, absurd, and an indication that uh, the Republican Party really is a cult. Uh, but that's going to help him, because if you look at this historically, Candidates who come out of a very contested primary do not do nearly as well in presidential elections as those who do not have to worry anything at all about a primary challenge. Correct. That's just the reality of it. Um, So, you know, all sorts of things are possible. uh, And as I said, I will have some thoughts at the end of the podcast about what my predictions are for Tuesday, but it should be fascinating. Now, obviously, much of the news cycle outside of politics is revolving around the coronavirus. And we have our first death in the United States, in the state of Washington. There continues to be more reports of more cases here and there through throughout the world and scattered across uh, the United States of America. This week, Mike Pence was made, some people call the fall guy. Correct. For, for the coronavirus task force. Uh, and, and this is really an ultimate Rorschach test, I think, for people. How they're evaluating uh, what uh, Trump and this administration are doing with regard to coronavirus. And I'm in a pretty unique situation. Because even though I'm obviously very anti-Trump and host a podcast called Individual One, uh, which is inherently a a negative view of Donald Trump, I'm also still very objective. And I'm still, at my heart, a conservative. And I also still have great skepticism towards the news media. I also have a wife who is borderline freaking out about coronavirus and has spent hundreds of dollars on extra supplies in case we get quarantined, which there's no imminent indication that we will. But she's definitely someone, even though she's a a level one Trump supporter, who uh, has bought in that this thing is going to be horrible. I don't know if it's going to be horrible or not, but I do believe that if you took all of the facts as they currently are, and Obama was president, I don't think there would be nearly the same kind of panic, especially in the news media, as you have today. I don't think that's even in question. I think that that's pretty much an obvious fact. Correct. Now, there is an argument to be made that that makes sense. And see, this is why I'm conflicted. Because I have said for years, in fact, I said this even before Trump was elected, that one of the great problems with his presidency would be because he's a pathological liar and has no expertise in any of this, that eventually we were going to face a legitimate crisis. And that in a crisis, you need to trust your leaders. And Trump has no ability to make anyone outside of his cult trust him. Correct. And that's a huge problem, regardless of your political beliefs. You need a leader that the people will believe, right? I mean, that's obvious. Believe me. No, I'm sorry. We can't because you're a pathological liar. Correct. You have no credibility on any of these kinds of issues. Correct. And so it's understandable why the news media would respond to the way Trump is handling this much differently. I mean, if Obama came out there and said, which he never would have, if Obama came out there and said, uh, there's no reason to panic, everything's under control, we've done a great job on this, and by the way, stocks are starting to look really good to me. Oh, my God. I mean, that's ama- it's amazing to me that the President of the United States told people to buy stocks. And then it's even more amazing to me that after the President of the United States told people to buy stocks via Twitter, the market went down almost another 3,000 points in the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Correct. I mean, think about all of the Trump supporters who may have actually trusted him and bought stock and ended up losing, hopefully, uh, you know, money that they didn't need in the short term, uh, but ended up losing a lot of money. Because the, the last week has been the worst week for the stock market uh, since the collapse in 2008. And so, and this was after, most of this was after the President of the United States said stocks are starting to look really good. But if, the, if Obama had ever exuded that kind of confidence, 
he would be praised by the news media for being a steady hand on the ship and causing people not to panic and that we would believe we would have trust that that was based in something i don't know whether or not trump's confidence is based in anything at all i have no way of knowing and that's a massive problem it is hard for me to believe that even you know because i don't believe that trump is a complete imbecile i don't i think he is a book moron but i think he is at times a savant when it comes to things that relate to his own survival and nothing relates to his own survival more right now than making sure that the coronavirus is not a complete disaster because if it is, I am one of those who believes, and I have been in the top less than 1% of people who don't think anything can hurt him politically among his base. But even I believe that if this goes very badly, it will eat into his base because it will directly impact the lives of people, and it will do so in a way that, uh, that uh, exposes all of Trump's vulnerabilities. This is the type of situation that people will not have a difficult time if it goes badly blaming him for and believing that he didn't do everything he could have, especially since he's bragging about it now. The words he's using to brag about his response will come back to haunt him, not with the core cult 45 followers, but you know, with that 5 to 10% of his following, maybe 15% of his following, that is soft cult support. People like my wife, for instance. My, if coronavirus goes very badly, I think she would be completely off the reservation and would be willing to vote for almost, maybe not Bernie Sanders, but almost anybody other than Donald Trump. And so, you know, I've been using her as a one-person focus group, and I think that with there's some logic to that. So the coronavirus is politically very, very, very dangerous to Trump. And I can't believe he would be this dumb to put everything on the line and make it as clear as day by, you know, and he got a little bit of a raw deal when he was purported to say that the virus was a hoax. It's not really what he meant. He meant Democrats are trying to use it as a new hoax, whatever. The point is he's made numerous statements, both in public and on Twitter, that are going to come back to haunt him if this thing is nearly as bad as it is feared to be. My gut, and it's almost just a gut instinct based upon my mistrust in the media and how I also know the way scientists work. And there's a logic to this. Scientists extrapolate, and they always extrapolate to the worst possible scenario, not because they want people to panic for the sake of panic, but because it's in their self-interest, and that's probably in the self-interest of the world to be overly reactive to a situation like this than to be under reactive. So everyone's self-interest is into making sure we are as diligent as possible in making sure we're prepared for what could be a really, really bad situation. I don't, I don't think that that's necessarily a horrible thing. But when people forget that that's their incentive structure, it can lead to panic. And so I, I'm someone who always believes that when you're dealing in extrapolation, because a little bit of bias or a little bit of error in extrapolation can create an enormously false reading on what's going to happen in the long run. We see this in all areas of life, and certainly in the case of a virus like this, that is more than possible. Am I hoping that's the case? Absolutely. We should all be hoping that's the case. We should all be hoping that this semi-panic that we're in will actually help the, the virus not to get completely out of control. And so my gut tells me the media is actually overreacting, and they're overreacting here partially because it's natural when you have a situation that could cause lots and lots of death. But it's also facilitated because they know this could finally be Trump's kryptonite that they could they might finally have Trump by the balls 
and that there's absolutely, whether it's conscious or subconscious, it's absolutely driving some of the media coverage on this. And my fear is, although this would be a good outcome for the world, but politically my fear is this could end up working in Trump's favor. Because what if it turns out he's right or mostly right? What if that happens? It's, he becomes, to use a virus metaphor, he becomes further inoculated from any kind of media criticism and panic because he will once again, at least in the eyes of his supporters, be vindicated. And the argument, one of the strongest arguments against his reelection, will be muted because he will have shown that he is not incompetent that his administration faced a major crisis and we got through it okay. And and part of why I, I my instincts are that the media is overreacting here is, again, I'm not an expert, but everything I read about this indicates that the coronavirus is a really, essentially, a really bad version of the flu with, with a, a pneumonia element to it. But that if you catch this uh, soon enough and get the proper treatment – there's an exceedingly good chance you're going to be fine. And and I guess, you know, part of what always drives my logical brain crazy is this disconnect, this double standard, where every single year in this country, about 50,000 people die because of the flu bug. And we know this. We know it's going to be in that ballpark, depending on the breaks of a particular flu season. We know this is going to happen. And yeah, there's some coverage, hey, get vaccinated. But no one's counting the number of deaths from the flu bug every year. If we did, that's all the news coverage would be. Because that's, unfortunately, part of life. And I'm not saying you know, that, oh, well, you know what? There's nothing we can do about coronavirus. Just go ahead and, uh, you know, those are the breaks. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that from a news standpoint, what? why is the flu bug given a pass? And, and all of a sudden, coronavirus gets major news every time there's even a case of it. Not a death, but a case of it that, be, that gets revealed uh, here in the United States. That, that's baffling to me. It's baffling. Uh, And so, you know, I don't trust the Trump administration at all. I thought that Trump's press news conference yesterday was actually pretty good. Uh, He was much more subdued. And and in a rational world, people would have been calmed at least somewhat. I thought Mike Pence's comments were fairly decent. But I understand why people don't trust him and, and why this has no impact. And it wouldn't shock me if the stock market kept going down again this week, although I think, frankly, it's probably oversold at this point. Uh, I'm not telling you go buy stocks, <laughs> nor, nor would anybody be smart to do that based upon my recommendation. I'm just looking at it from a logical perspective. And my gosh, uh, it, it, you, know, you lose that much value over short, such a short period of time based upon an assumption of something that hasn't really happened yet. Uh, that, that's, that's strange to me. That's strange. And so, so look, does anybody really know what's going to happen with coronavirus? I don't think we do. Uh, and, and is this potentially politically lethal for Donald Trump? Absolutely, yes. But there's another side to this, too, if it turns out a different direction. And it just feels like, since it happened so many times in the past, the media might be overreacting and overplaying their hands. And some liberals might be overplaying their hands here. Let's actually hope that that's the scenario for the sake of of the country and the world from a medical standpoint. But, uh, but that could also end up being a, a real negative uh, with positive uh, elements to it, a silver lining, obviously, from a medical standpoint. But it could definitely work in Trump's favor come November, especially if the stock market does make a comeback, because the stock market has been a huge part of Donald Trump's argument that he is great on the economy and therefore should be given another four years. Now, in a moment, I'll have uh, some predictions on what's going to happen on Super Tuesday and some closing comments. But first, uh, here is Tom Bauer, an interview I did with him. He is the founder of our sponsor, Imbue CBD. Tom, thanks so much for joining us and for your sponsorship of the program. Please uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your company, Imbue Botanicals. Sure, John. Imbue Botanicals produces really the most extensive line of premium clinical-grade full-spectrum CBD products, including tinctures, capsules, topical lotions, and salves. 
and even award-winning beauty products. They're available in multiple strengths for both people as well as pets. Our premium Colorado-grown hemp products are non-GMO, cruelty-free, and even vegan. Now, a lot of people might not be that familiar yet with CBD. It's getting a lot of publicity. But for those who aren't, what is CBD and why do you guys think it's so important? CBD is short for cannabidiol. It's one of the 115 or so cannabinoids that are found in the cannabis plant. It's generally accepted as the cannabinoid or the element, basically, that provides the health benefits for cannabis. But science has shown really that CBD works best when combined with all the other cannabinoids and the natural terpenes that are found naturally in the plant, which is why our products are full spectrum, meaning they offer a full cadre of all the cannabinoids and terpenes for maximum effectiveness. Now, Tom, you mentioned that Imbue uses hemp. Tell our audience, if you will, the difference between hemp and marijuana, and why your product is not the latter. Great, John. It's really important to understand this. You know, we're all familiar with medical marijuana. Our products are, are not made from marijuana. They're actually made from hemp. Basically, hemp and marijuana are both the cannabis sativa plant. The difference is that hemp contains extremely low levels of THC, which is the cannabinoid that makes you high when you ingest or smoke marijuana. By law, hemp must contain 0.3% or less of THC by dry weight. So, so low, basically, that you can't get high from the product. So, in essence, basically, with hemp, you get all the health benefits of medical marijuana without the high or the psychoactive effect of THC. I should also add here that Congress last year passed the 2018 Farm Bill, which essentially legalized hemp federally and descheduled all the non-THC cannabinoids. So, Essentially, it's, it's, uh, it's legal, which obviously people want to know. You know, can, can I buy it? Can I use it? It's legal. Now, when, when I use it, it's really helped my sleeping. I've only just started using uh, some of your products. But tell us, uh, what are some of the benefits that our listeners might find if they, if they use Imbue Botanical products? Really great question, John. We're actually not allowed to make claims about CBD or products per the FDA. Just an aside, if your listeners come across sites out there that are making health claims, we should always just avoid them. Just you don't want to deal with, with folks like that. It's, it's not legal to do that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't health benefits to CBD. We at MU Botanicals always encourage our customers to do their own research. There is a ton of information and studies available on the Internet. You want to talk to your physician, your independent pharmacist, even your veterinarian. You know, become informed. We've seen some absolutely amazing things personally and with our customers. Obviously, you know, the onus, if you will, is on each individual to to go out there and, and do the kind of research to see if it may be a fit for the kind of things that they're experiencing. Also, you know, check out our website, which has a ton of additional information as well. And that website is? It's www.imbuecbd.com. It's www.imbuecbd.com. Now, you mentioned the FDA, and just before we taped this interview, there was a news story where the FDA put out a warning and sent letters to, I think, 15 different CBD companies. Yours was not one of them. It was perceived as the FDA basically, I don't know, seemed to be like, backing away a little bit from CBD. What was your interpretation of what the FDA did and and how should our listeners interpret it? That's an extremely good question as well, John. And I think first and foremost is what the FDA is doing, especially when they're sending out letters to companies that they send letters out to, is doing their job. Their job is to really protect the American public from, you know, basically, you know, drugs that shouldn't be there, that are doing what they're supposed to do, that can cause harm, and also making sure that companies are doing what they're supposed to do. In in the case of these letters, these companies were making health claims simply because of how FDA operates and and the way that, uh, you know, CBD, which is basically a kind of a a brand new uh, thing for FDA, they're not allowed to make. You know, I'm glad that they're doing that. You know, we never make claims uh, at Imbue Botanicals. That's something that, that is, again, is, is goes back to the customer to do a lot of their own research on. They also came out with some basic overviews and essentially said you should really know what you're doing before you take CBD. It's not necessarily something you should be taking in water and in food products. You should basically get the kind of information that you need and talk to your healthcare team, your physician, your pharmacist, your, your veterinarian to make sure that there's a medical professional, you know, kind of assisting in the process. Now, in my experience, having used the product and seen the packaging and everything, you guys are totally first class, but first class comes with some expense. You guys are a little bit more expensive than your competitors. Tell us, tell us why you bring more value. We are more expensive than some folks, and 
certainly not more expensive than others, but uh, but we're we are a higher price product, and the reason for that is, is where we grow, how we extract, how we formulate our products. We do that for maximum effectiveness, and you know what our folks tell us, and whether they're the pharmacies that we sell to or the customers that use our product or patients who use our product every day, they tell us that the product works and works better than things that uh, other products that they bought. It's more expensive to do it correctly, but ultimately that's obviously what customers want. If you're going to spend the money, they want something that works, and that's what our products do. So, Tom, if our listeners want to buy your products and, or learn more about them, where should they go? Go to our website. It's www cbd that's www.imb as in boy uecbd.com imbucbd.com tom thanks so much for your time and your sponsorship john thank you thanks for what you're doing appreciate it so on tuesday i think we're going to know a heck of a lot more by the next uh, podcast which will be wednesday mid-morning los angeles california time we should have a lot more information about where the Democratic presidential nominating process is heading. I can't remember a, uh, a Super Tuesday that is less predictable uh, than this one, but uh, I'm going to give it a try regardless. So here are some predictions uh, for Super Tuesday. I believe that Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden will split almost all of the states. I think that when it, the night is said and done, they're going to win pretty much the same number of states. I think they will win all of the states except most likely Minnesota. Amy Klobuchar is likely to win Minnesota. I'm a little concerned about whether or not she's lost so much momentum that even her home state decides it's not really worth it to vote for her. But I do believe Minnesotans have a, a real pride in their state, and they may just use this as a vote for Amy Klobuchar to be Joe Biden's vice presidential nominee. And let's be clear, whether she wins Minnesota is a key uh, to whether or not she would be Joe Biden's vice presidential nominee. Her argument for VP gets greatly enhanced if she can win her home state. And she can also help Joe Biden by keeping Bernie Sanders from winning those delegates. So the Biden people are actually rooting for Amy Klobuchar in Minnesota uh, for both of those reasons. So I think she probably will pull out a win in Minnesota. I do not believe that Elizabeth Warren is going to win her home state of Massachusetts, especially after seeing that amazing Bernie Sanders rally in Boston Common uh, yesterday. I believe that Bernie Sanders will win Massachusetts, which should end for 100% certitude. Elizabeth Warren's incredibly uh, disappointing and underperforming, considering how much the media loves her uh, campaign. So I believe that Sanders will win all of the northeastern states. I believe that Biden will win all of the southeastern states. I believe Klobuchar will win Minnesota. And then it really all comes down to the southwest. What's going to happen in Texas and California? That is really by far the most important thing to look at as far as how this is going to go forward. If Sanders wins Texas and California, as the polls currently indicate, he is going to be way ahead. How far ahead, we won't know until probably maybe even Thursday or Friday once all the delegates are accounted for. But he will be way ahead. So keep an eye mostly on Texas and California, as I said earlier in the podcast. I have to believe, I got, and I have so little faith in, in the state in which I live in California. I have to believe that Kamala Harris is going to make some move in the next couple of days endorsing Joe Biden. And that they have to understand the significance of him getting over the 15%, ideally into the 20s, to prevent a runaway delegate victory by Bernie Sanders. I am going to be optimistic and say I think that will happen, but I don't know it. <laughs> I'm partially hoping, but I do believe for sure that Sanders will win California. Uh, Texas is a more complicated matter. I think Texas is going to come down to the wire. I think that's going to be maybe the most watched race on election night because it will be close and it will be huge. So I, I'm, going to, I'm just going to predict that Sanders and, and Biden are going to go head-to-head, down to the wire. 
I might give a slight edge to Sanders based upon the current polling, but I think it's going to be very close. And if Biden were to pull off a victory in Texas, that might end up being what gives him down the road the leverage to win this thing uh, at the convention. So make sure that you focus on Texas and California. Everything else is significant, but much more easily predictable and not nearly as big when it comes to delegates as those two states. As far as our overall prediction as to uh, whether or not Trump will be reelected, we went up to a high of 75% a couple of podcasts ago. But uh, there have been many events now that have diminished that number. We have obviously the coronavirus panic, the stock market crash, the Joe Biden bounce back. So we are now way down from a high of 75 percent for Trump's reelection when it looked like Bernie Sanders was going to be for sure the Democratic nominee. I'm not going to put that number at 55 percent, still way too high, uh, but in a much more reasonable and optimistic perspective than we had just a couple of weeks ago. So 55 percent currently the, the official individual one podcast chances of Donald Trump being reelected. As always, please, no wagering. Uh, But also uh, remember to uh, um, subscribe to this program. Please rate it, review it, share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at individual, the number one pod. That's at individual, the number one pod. And until next time, which will be just after Tuesday. So make sure you join us for episode 92. Then uh, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.